Does a youth leader ever feel like they have it figured out? This hasn't been my experience. However, I couldn't be an effective youth leader today without Dan Duckworth's presentation about going from youth worker to youth mentor. Mentorship is a key concept to understand when leading youth. In his presentation, Dan talks about ways to really turn the traditional approach to leading youth on its head. How can you better know your purpose? How can you find out their life goals? How can you build a relationship that is transformational rather than simply filling time during the weekly youth activity? You can watch Dan's presentation in the Young Saints virtual library by going to leadingsaints.org 14. You'll get free access for 14 days and that will give you plenty of time to watch Dan's presentation a few times. Let's give youth the leadership they deserve. Before we jump into the content of this episode, I kind of feel it's important that I introduce myself. Now, many of you have been around a long time. You're well familiar with my voice and with Leading Saints as an organization. But if you're not, well, my name is Kurt Frankham, and I am the Executive Director of Leading Saints and the podcast host. Now, Leading Saints is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through, well, content creation like this podcast and many other resources at leadingsaints.org. And uh, we don't act like we have all the answers or know exactly what a leader should do or not do, but we like to explore the concepts of leadership, the science of leadership, what people are researching about leadership, and see how we can apply them to a Latter-day Saint world. So here we go. I love it when I get the opportunity to do these interviews sitting down with a former general organizational president. Is that the right way to say it? I don't know. But Sister Bonnie L. Oscarson, who served as the Young Women's General President from April of 2013 until March 31st of 2018. Sister Oscarson has so much more to her leadership journey than you may not realize. Her husband was called as a mission president to Sweden when he was 29 years old and she was 25 years old. I mean, she was the age of almost a sister missionary serving out there as the wife of the mission president and uh, phenomenal stories and that later went back to serve in the temple there and uh, so many other leadership opportunities that we get into. I just love the behind the the inside baseball stories, right, of of how these general organizational presidents are called when they got the phone call, you know, how they feel inadequate and, and overcame that. I think we I think we can all relate to many of these experiences that general leaders go through and uh, learn a lot from it. So fantastic discussion. And I think you'll enjoy it. Here's my interview with Sister Bonnie L. Oscarson. Today, I am meeting with uh, interviewing Bonnie Oscarson. How are you, Bonnie? I'm doing well, thank you. Good. Now, we've uh, maybe if people aren't familiar with your name, or if, probably if they saw your picture, they'd say, oh, I know Bonnie Oscarson. How do you, how would you put yourself into context? Uh, how do people know me? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I guess it's mostly because I was the Young Women General President of the church. Nice. Five years ago. I was released five years ago. So. Yeah, they just, I guess, they just replaced your replacement. They just replaced right? my replacement. Nice. <laughs> so it's fewer and fewer people that recognize me. It's more... You look really familiar. How do I know you? <laughs> <laughs> nice. And there's so many directions we can go with your experience. But maybe just give us a little bit about your background, where you were raised and your upbringing and whatnot. Well, I think uh, the way that I was raised probably helped contribute to my preparation for what came later in life. My family, I was born here in Utah in Salt Lake City and lived here until I was nine. And at that point, my parents decided they wanted bigger adventures. So they told the company that my dad worked for were willing to be transferred. And so we moved a lot. I lived in Oklahoma and then Denver, Colorado, and I went to high school in Nashville, Tennessee, tiny little branch at the time. Wow. <laughs> and then after I graduated from high school, my family moved to St. Louis, Missouri. Wow. So, um, and, and, at that point, then I went off to BYU. Nice. And so those developmental years, you saw a lot of diversity and, and all I sorts did. of experiences. I, and I think it was valuable because I lived in small branches and I lived in well-developed, you know, well-functioning wards. Yeah. So I kind of saw the spectrum of church, you know, how the church is in different parts of the world. And I think that did help me later on to be more empathetic to those who lived in different situations. Yeah. Pretty traditional upbringing and traditional Latter-day Saint family. Yes. Although I have to say, if we're going to talk about leadership, I have to give my parents credit hmm. for being the examples of Christ-like leadership to me that I observed throughout my childhood. I especially think of the time, the period of time that we lived in Nashville, Tennessee. When we first moved there, I was 14, I think. And it was one branch for the whole metropolitan area. <laughs> 
And my father was called to be the district president. And so he, he had responsibility for these little branches way out in the hills. And I'm talking very rural, very primitive. Mm. And, and I often went with them to branch conferences. And I saw my parents, how they interacted with people that didn't have a lot of education, perhaps, and were not always really experienced in church leadership, but who had faith. My parents were always loving and encouraging, never judgmental. I never heard them criticize. Or, and we had some pretty unique experiences on those I little bet. trips. <laughs> I bet. In fact, can I share one with you? I Just, loved it, yeah. We were at a branch conference in this little tiny branch out in the hills of Tennessee. And it was in a rented chapel of some kind. They didn't even own their own building yet. And it was Tennessee, and there was no air conditioning, so it was hot oh, wow. and muggy and you know, just really miserable. And as, as they're getting started, my father said, we need to sustain branch officers. So he said, um, presented the branch president's name and said, all in favor. Half the congregation raised a hand. He said, all opposed. The other half oh, raised no. <laughs> And, uh, you know, we're, I'm a little girl from Utah originally, and I turned to my mom and I said, I don't think I've ever seen that before. <laughs> and, you know, what happens now? And I, uh, I love the example of my father and his counselors. They said, okay, we're going to suspend the meeting for the time being, and we would like to talk to each one of you that had, you know, an opposing vote. This and so they were willing to listen. There was no judgment. There was, you know, let's listen. Let's find out what's going on here. It was kind of a Hatfield McCoy kind of yeah. <laughs> experience, and there was no worthiness reason why he shouldn't be sustained. It was just personal opinion, I guess. Yeah. And, and so he was sustained in the end. But I got to observe experiences like that in my youth. I think my mother was the District Relief Society president for a mm. while too. Went to seminary there. I, I would get up at four thirty in the morning and drive a half an hour across town to get to seminary, but had amazingly skilled and knowledgeable seminary teachers. For instance, yeah. Don Richards, who was a doctoral student at Vanderbilt University, was my seminary teacher for a year, and he was standing. Had my mom one year. So some great experiences in yeah. my youth that exposed me to a lot of leadership principles, to how the church is run, and mostly about love and being non-judgmental. Yeah. So, was BYU always the plan? That's hard to say. Both of my brothers went to the U, went to the University of Utah. Oh, wow. One was planning to be a doctor, one an architect. And it was back in a time when and my parents were having to pay out-of-state tuition. So when I said, well, I want to go to the U, <laughs> they said, no, I think BYU would be a better fit for <laughs> yeah. you. And I don't know if it's because I was a girl and there wasn't the, the emphasis on women getting, you know, as an education back then as much, but I'm, I've always been grateful that that's where I ended up. Yeah. I really had a great experience there. So. Is that where you met your husband? No. Where'd you meet him? Uh, my family moved from Nashville to St. Louis, Missouri, just after I graduated from high school. My husband is from St. Louis. He was born and raised there. Hmm. And we actually met on the temple site in far west Missouri, which if you know, if you've ever been there, it's out in the middle of nowhere. For anybody to have met there, is kind of uh, a miracle, really, but they were dedicating the the um, site that they had just uh, you know finished off with fences and markers and everything. It was dedication that weekend, and so his family was there. My family was just moving there. My father had met his father, who was the stake president of the area, and he said, "Oh, come meet our new stake president." And Paul was there. He was just home from his mission, and so that's kind of the first place we met. Oh, nice. But yeah, he was my Sunday school teacher that summer for the until we both went out to BYU, and it wasn't until a year later that we started dating. Nice. Yeah. And then you got married, and how how quickly did uh, leadership opportunities find you? I know you went on a, a mission pretty quick, but were there others before that? Well, just the normal. I taught primary. And, okay. You know, <laughs> yeah. Secretary of the Relief Society, that kind of thing. So we lived in, well, we were going to school at first. And then when he graduated, we moved back to St. Louis. Yeah. So when I was 25 years old and he was 29, we received a phone call from Marion G. Romney, counselor. President, just out of the blue. Out of the blue. Wow. Yeah. One day. And they did things differently back then, calling <laughs> mission presidents, mission leaders. Uh-huh. They actually issued the call to him over the phone. Oh, really? And nowadays, I think they do exploratory interviews and, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. you're on our list, maybe down there. You know? mm-hmm. But So he got called and told where he would be serving in one phone no, call? No, not where oh, okay. he was serving. Oh, gotcha. Just that he was going to be called. And because of our ages, it was just totally, obviously, out of the blue. His brother, Richard Oscarson, had, who was also quite a bit younger than his siblings, he had been called to serve as the mission leader in the Stockholm Sweden mission the year before. This was 1975 when, he, when his brother was called. But Paul was quite a bit younger. He was, he was, like I said, he was 29 at the time. He always claims, just remember I was 30 by the time we went. <laughs> so he likes nice. to, but wow. yeah, so it was kind of a big surprise. And did he serve as a younger missionary there? He did. He served okay. his mission there. 
And again, being prepared for, you know, things ahead that, are, that I had, he was an assistant to the president for a year in his mission. So he had, had observed a lot of and had a wonderful mission president that he just loved and, and admired his leadership skills. So he, mm. he'd been trained well. Nice. But he was still young. <laughs> so we didn't know where we were going and couldn't imagine because Sweden had just been filled, you know, what the purpose was. I could think of 10 other couples in our ward with more maturity and experience and, you know, more qualified. So it just takes a lot of trust at times to say, I don't understand this, but okay, Heavenly Father called it. Who else would have thought of us? Yeah. <laughs> and so the call didn't come for, I think, two or three months. And we were watching the mailbox just like any missionary back then, you know, mm-hmm. for the call. And, and finally we... We heard that they were splitting Sweden in half, and we were going to be on the south and west part of the country, and his brother had the east and north of the country. Wow. So we got to serve at the same time, you know, with his brother and oh, wife and cool. family. That was, that was fun. And their father was called in the same group as we were um, to serve in Scotland at the time. Wow. So there were three of us, three Oscarsons were over there all together. <laughs> so his, their father was also the mission president. He was the mission president. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. <laughs> so the Oscarsons just ran the... Well, the not, not really. <laughs> there were a lot of us. <laughs> I said, wow, what an experience. Yeah. yeah, it was. So at 25, I assume you had a couple of kids at that point or... Oh, uh, we took a newborn with us. We had uh, four children and the youngest was brand new. She was born June 13th and we were supposed to leave July 1st. I asked for an extra week or so just... To, and so I think it was a week or so later that we actually went. They were and they were creating a new mission, so we weren't having to replace somebody. There wasn't a big oh, yeah. rush. His brother was kind of helping to get the new mission set up. So um, yeah, so we took four children with us, including a newborn, which presented. I just wasn't your typical mission president's wife. Yeah, and could not travel. You know, we had children in school and couldn't travel like a lot do, and and plus didn't have the same responsibilities that mission presidents' wives have now of taking care of the health issues of missionaries. Now it was a mm. bit different back then. Didn't even have preach my gospel. I mean, yeah, yeah, you, you know, dark, the Book of Mormon. And, the, we did have the Book of Mormon. Yeah, you were ready to go. Yeah, that's right. Wow. So, but, and then we had a fifth child born there. So, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, as a, I think many people in the audience can relate to feeling like a very inexperienced leader, and uh, I mean, you, that wasn't even on your mind, and suddenly you're yeah. thrown into this this role. I mean, what what comes to mind as far as how did you walk into that role and begin to to lead and engage with the missionaries and and whatnot. We were so young that I think it made us a little bit unaware of what we should have been feeling, mm. perhaps. I just, I, I trusted the Lord. This must have come from him because who else would have thought? And we were told at the Mission President Seminar that President Kimball wanted young families in Europe. And so we were not, it's not like we were so great that that's why we got right. called. There were a lot of young oh, couples with young families being called to the European countries. Was that. there a specific, did he say why young I think families? just had? to be an example of what... LDS families should look like, oh, okay. and, which yeah. puts a lot of pressure on oh, you, right. you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> better behave. And, yeah. you know. But um, it was a glorious experience. They said, you tell your missionaries they are not to call you their mission mom. You're not. The, <laughs> it was their same age, practically. Yeah, yeah. In fact, the sister missionaries were very close to my age. Yeah. It was hard to stay as involved in the work because I had young children at home. And, and I was told by the general authorities in our training, your first responsibility is your family. And so they were young kids and they were just starting school and they were going to a British um, school. We were in the city of Gothenburg. And so I was home more. I, I was not in the office every day. I was not mm-hmm. involved in that. I, try, I tried in the summertime when the kids were out of school, we would travel with Paul to do zone conferences. And, but it was a small enough mission that he could get home from any place in the mission easily within, you know, a reasonable amount of time. So it just worked out. And I tried to read the the weekly, I think back, I think nowadays the wives maybe don't read the missionary letters, but back then it was, it was encouraged. And so I tried to keep up with the work by reading their, their weekly letters yeah. and we'd send the kids and I would make birthday cards for them. And also, and honestly, they do become like your children, even though I wasn't as involved. I knew those missionaries and yeah. loved them. Yeah. So, Wow. So for the most part, it sounds like just a traditional, you know, your husband had a job, would go into the office, you'd be with the kids most of the day. That's and, true. Yeah. But you just happened to be in a really cool country. Yeah. Right? Oh, we did. And and I, I'm an adopted Swede. I, yeah. I don't have a lot of DNA that comes from Sweden, which disappoints my husband terribly. He thinks he's <laughs> Swedish. But I really related to the culture. I loved the culture and the, uh, you know, the traditions. And we've adopted so many of those in our own family. So, Yeah. Was there some responsibilities like, I mean, now like, you know, mission presidents, they go to state conferences and they're sort of expected to speak and, you know, the wife, was that, that, oh, would, yeah. that was a lot of your responsibility as well. Yes. And I, um, 
I studied Swedish while I was there. I, I felt like it was a great opportunity for me to learn to speak mm-hmm. foreign language. So I had a, a neighbor who was a member of the church, and our children were the same age, and she was very, very skilled at languages. And so I would go to her house, you know, at least once or twice a week, and we'd have Swedish lessons. So you know, I, I learned to give talks in Swedish and bear my testimony. And there were we had. When we first got there, there were two member districts. There were no stakes in our mission. So my husband was also responsible for the mm-hmm. membership. And so, yeah, we had a lot of district conferences that I bore my testimony in. And I would write it out. And somebody would translate it for me. And, mm. and I would read it. You know, And I, I learned to understand Swedish pretty well. Yeah, um, I wasn't real confident in speaking at that point. But that got better later as we were called back to the temple. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so you're there for three years? Three years. Mm -hmm. And did your husband have many like leadership, formal leadership roles prior to to that? Or He'd been in a bishopric. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So he was was learning as He was learning. But like I say, he had had that experience um, serving in his own mission as an assistant to the Mm -hmm. president for a year, which is kind of a long time, longer than usual. And he felt like that had really helped prepare him. So That's great. Then you return home and just generally in your adult life, raising a family and whatnot, right. any other notable leadership roles that really stand out? Well, let me just share this with you on the way home. Um, I remember taking off and as we're sitting on the plane, um, my thought was, how are we ever going to beat this in our life? There can't be anything in our life. We started at the top and it's gone, going to be all downhill from here, I thought. <laughs> Couldn't yeah. have imagined. You yeah, know, what, what an experience. What yeah. lay ahead. So. I'm sure your husband needed to still get established in his career and things like it that. It was, and he uh, he had asked for a leave of absence. He was he's a retail executive. He worked for May Department Stores, hmm. and when he was called, he went to them and he said, "I've been asked to do this for three years. Would it be possible for you to um, give me a leave of absence?" And nobody would ever asked him that before. <laughs> yeah, so. especially twenty nine year old. You know, yeah, yeah. and uh, and quite frankly. We were young enough that we weren't that concerned. Um, when we looked around at the other people in our mission group, they were giving up end of career, you know, a lot yeah. of uh, things that were big sacrifices because they were at the end of their careers. And we felt like, come home and get another job if this doesn't yeah. But they did say yes. They said they would hold it. And interesting enough, uh, inter- interestingly enough, his brother-in-law was brought into that company, got a job with him in HR right before we left. Oh, nice. He was there when we came home. So he, you know, they couldn't find the exact same job, but they, they said, we, we may not have the same job open for you, but we'll put you at the same level somewhere in the company. Yeah. His brother-in-law was working in the HR department and got him plugged back into oh, it. Cool. And we just resumed life. And it, it wasn't, it, it was like, did that really happen? <laughs> yeah. We just carried on like a young family. We went on to have, so we had five children by the time we came home and we had two more later. So. And we've moved around a lot too. My husband and I, he mm-hmm. got transferred to different divisions of his company. So we've lived in, in our married life, we've lived in uh, South, we lived in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. I don't know if that rings a bell. Hmm. It's where the Limbaugh's come from. Okay. <laughs> Just, there, there are a lot of them there. And then we lived, lived in New Jersey, Boston, and then uh, 13 years in Houston, Texas, before Macy's department store bought made department stores, and then we got moved to Salt Lake. Oh, nice, nice. Now, what sort of, uh preparation came for your role as general young women's president. Uh, did you have an opportunity to serve as a ward young women's president? Three times. Okay. Right. <laughs> Most of my colleagues have been working with the youth. So again, I think the Lord does know what's coming. Yeah. And you know, I'd, I'd served in three different wards as young women president. I taught seminary for nine years, a lot of gospel doctrine too. Oh yeah. <laughs> but let me just give you an example of opportunities the Lord presents. Before we were called to go back to Sweden to serve as the president and matron of the Stockholm Temple, I was trying to fit. I didn't finish my degree at BYU first time around. I'd started out in commercial art. And when the kids were all just about to leave the home, I saw the little flyer on the, everybody has on their bulletin board in the church that says, finish today what you began yesterday, whatever uh, it yeah, is. Yeah. And so I enrolled in the BYU independent studies program and went back to school. My patriarchal blessing, it says in it, you will complete your education. And it always bothered me that I hadn't even gotten a bachelor's degree. So I went back to school and um, started doing it. Independent studies is not an easy way to get a degree. Oh, really? Because <laughs> it's mostly online and, then you know, you're working by yourself. And I didn't have access to a classroom setting with discussion and a professor. But we got moved to Utah right in the middle of that process. And that helped because I could take some classes on campus. Mm-hmm. And, and that helped me finish. So. So one of the classes that I needed to graduate was either statistics or some kind of math class or an advanced language credit. 
And I had studied French originally, but I hadn't finished that credit. Our son, Chip, his name is Christopher, but we call him Chip, is a professor at BYU, and he's in Scandinavian studies. And he Mm -hmm. said, Mom, I'll teach that advanced Swedish class this summer if you'd like to take it. And so I took a class from my son. Oh, cool. It was fantastic. It was hard because I hadn't spoken Swedish for like 30 years. And I was in a class with a bunch of return missionaries who were fresh and just, you know. But, and my vocabulary in Swedish was bearing testimonies. I could say the word atonement and I could talk about resurrection and, you know, savior. But this class, he taught it in Swedish and he covered literature and history and culture. And, you know, we had to read books. We had to write essays. Really stretched me. But it really helped me get better at wow. speaking Swedish. Shortly after I graduated, within months, we were called to go back to the temple in Stockholm. And I was so grateful oh, I bet. that I had just taken that class. I had never had to write in Swedish before. You don't do that when you're just learning the language kind of one. But I think the Lord knew I was going to yeah. need it. Because when you're a matron in a temple, I had to you know, do a preparation meetings, training. I had to take care of new endowments who were coming for the first time. We had a lot of languages in that temple. <laughs> I bet, yeah. Norway was in our temple district, half of Sweden, Latvia. So we had both Latvian and Russian, Spanish. We had a Spanish session every Saturday. But I'd worked in Houston, and I had learned to do the veil in Spanish. You know? Oh, my goodness. Does the Lord know what's coming? Yeah, yeah I cool. just have firm testimony of that. So that was a, a great experience. The other thing about finishing my degree was I had never considered myself to be that good of a writer. I don't love to write, and it. It was hard for me, but I was, my emphasis was British and American literature, which means I was being asked to write a lot of essays and it really helped improve my writing skills, I think. And later on, when I'm having to sit down and write general conference talks, I'm saying thank you, Heavenly Father, for for helping me have that experience where I feel like my writing skills, I'm still not a great writer, but it helped. It helped me become a better writer. So Wow. Yeah. Just that, the, the hindsight seeing how the Lord just molded you. I, um, I think and, so. And That's what I feel like. Give you those experiences that later came into absolutely be a real asset, right? And being in the temple too was a great leadership training experience. Um, shortly after we arrived there, some what, I think Paul maybe found a talk that I don't know how where it came from and how he found it. It was a um, it was called a conversation on leadership by Elder Bednar, where he had spoken to employees of the church, those uh, the leaders of the employees. I've seen it. It's Have a bootleg copy because it's not supposed to be. Other, I know I've it's not, it. <laughs> but thank heavens we got it because yeah. here we have this man, Elder Bednar, has a PhD in organizational behavior yeah, know, and right? business and leadership and has written books. I mean, he's, he's an amazing talent in that way. And reading that talk really influenced my leadership in the Stockholm Temple. Oh, cool. He, because he emphasized training your replacement. You should always be thinking of, you know, the people around you and treating them with love and, and putting their needs ahead. It doesn't matter who gets credit for things. He just had a lot of principles in that talk that I really found useful as a leader yeah. in the temple. So. What's the story of being called to uh, serve as a matron? As a matron? How are we called to do that? Oh, oh. Here it is. All right. <laughs> yeah. So when I graduated, my husband was able, we'd come to Salt Lake and he had a two-year contract with Macy's. And when that was completed and I had completed my degree, we decided we wanted to serve a mission. We didn't want to wait till we were too old to do it. So, and so he was in his early 60s. And so we put in our mission papers and we received a call to go to Hong Kong. And we'd even talk, we were even talking to the mission president there and he was going to have us go to an island. And I can't remember any of it yet in the Hong Kong area where we would be working with the international branches. Oh, wow. And we were excited. We were getting ready. We were supposed to leave June 1st. So we were flying around saying goodbye to our kids, farewell tour. <laughs> so, yeah. And we got a phone call 10 days before we were supposed to go into the MTC to please meet President Utdorf in his office. We never get these impressions about what things are about or hints. <laughs> I'm right there with you. Some people yeah. do and we just don't. So we didn't know what it was about. But when we went to his office, he said, we'd like to call you to, to serve in the temple in Stockholm instead of Hong Kong. Well, my husband had bought all these short sleeve shirts. It was a tropical climate. <laughs> and we're just, <laughs> but it's Sweden again. And my husband loves Sweden. Like I say, he thinks he's a Swede who just happens to be born in America, but <laughs> we both just burst into tears. President Utdorf reached behind him like he'd done it a hundred times, got a box of Kleenexes and, you know, it's like, I've seen this before <laughs> and put him in front of us, but we were thrilled. So it meant, meant st- sticking around for another four months, but yeah, first yeah. of November. Wow. We left for Sweden. And that's a three-year assignment? It's a three-year right? assignment. We still say it's the crowning 
assignment of our lives. Wow. To get to work together every day in the temple and to be in Stockholm, you know, you're in the Stockholm area. It was heaven. It was pure heaven. Did was, you live just in walking distance from the temple or um, how does that work? There's a, like a campus there and it has, they took a little, I guess it's an old parish house or farmhouse of some kind that they've renovated and that's where the temple president lives. Oh, cool. There's also a, a building that is a guest house for excursion workers to stay in and for those who are temple missionaries. And it's the best kept secret in the church. It's a great mission. I bet. Cute little apartment right on the temple grounds. There's a chapel there too. And it's right across the street from the train station. So you can zip into Stockholm, you know, in yeah. 45 minutes, and which we did on Mondays. I bet. I bet. <laughs> so, That's cool. So leaving that responsibility as, as the matron of the temple, like what was your new perspective about the temple or like what reflection do you have of being in that role for so long and what could you teach us about the temple? Well, I don't think we've ever served in a client. Well, it's hard to say because being young women's president, I felt this too. To see the hands, have the hand of the Lord so clearly, I just always felt, and I often would say to people, the Lord knows you're in the temple today. I just feel like the Lord is really closely involved with the work that goes on in the temple. It's a leadership job. You have to deal with personalities and issues that come up and everything. But I think the biggest takeaway from that experience is that we saw miracles daily. The Lord's hand is in that work. And he, you know, if you had a Spanish speaker come in and you're thinking, oh, how am I going to take care of this? So they'd walk in next that served the mission in South America and, and is a temple worker and can help. There were just miracles like that that happened daily to the point where you almost start to take them for granted. I, I would say that's the, the biggest takeaway is how much the Lord is involved in that work. We just felt his hand constantly. And you hate to come home. You hate to leave that environment because you're there every day. And it's interesting because we didn't, we were not Swedish. I think it causes us to feel a little more humility at realizing we don't understand the culture like you do. And we, you know, to, to tune into that and to say, I want to be sensitive to your feelings because we're not, we're not native Swedes. I think that's important to do. Since we have come home, they have had native temple presidents and mm. temple presidencies, and which is a better, better thing to do and all. So I hope I was sensitive to that. I hope they felt like, I love your culture. I love the traditions you have here. I love the kinds of people you are and the sacrifices you make. And the last thing you want to do is say, I come from church headquarters. I, yeah, <laughs> I exactly. know everything. <laughs> yeah. No, we don't. You know, I think you have to be really sensitive to local cultures. cultures. Yeah, yeah. Now, that assignment wrapped up about the time you were called as the general. What's the story behind that? Did you know coming home that that was your next step? Or Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> so we got home in, that assignment was from 2009 to 2012. And we got home the 1st of November of 2012. And that's when we moved into the condo. We kind of bought the condo sight unseen for my husband. I got to come home and kind of make some selections home, but while we renovated it. So we got home the 1st of November, and in January, I was asked to come in and be on a focus group. I didn't know what a focus group was. What's a focus group? Mm. <laughs> but, you know, I went, and there was a group of women. And, and also in this focus group was Elder Anderson, Elder Piper, and Elaine Dalton. And I didn't know it was unusual to have a focus group where you have an apostle <laughs> and a 70. And <laughs> I, I just was so unfamiliar. I'd never worked on that level of church leadership. So so we just had this focus group and what it was over, they just asked us questions and we discussed it. There were probably maybe 12, 13, 15 women there or something. And I do remember kind of saying to my husband, I wonder if they're looking me over for something. And he said, well, that's kind of egotistical of you to think. And, oh, you're right. You know, you're right. That's, uh, this is just information gathering. So, And in this focus group, they were just, were they asking you just general questions about? I think they asked us, that's a long time ago. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, yeah, sorry. But I think they asked us questions about Things they were discussing, for instance, well, I remember one of the questions was about the age that women should be in order to go to the temple or should we change the requirement? You know, things like that mm -hmm. that they were dealing with at church headquarters, I think. And because the policy had been, unless they're getting married or going on a mission, women don't go to the temple. You know? mm. Should we change that? Because a lot of young women wanted to go to the temple who had neither of those situations. So, so we were just asked to express how we felt about it mm. and our insights. So, yeah, a month later, I get a phone call on my cell phone. They have your number. They do. Because <laughs> <laughs> we were in Las Vegas at the time visiting a daughter. And um, it was Brooke Hales. And he said, I'm the executive secretary for the first presidency. And we would like to invite you, you and your husband to meet with the first presidency on Tuesday morning at nine o'clock. Wow. Okay. And you're in Vegas. So and we're in Vegas. Yeah. Well, we were just about to leave to go okay. home. Okay. So. Okay. Yeah. So Tuesday morning at nine o'clock, we were walking into the North Boardroom 
in the administration building. And I don't know why I was surprised. He had said the first president, but they were all three sitting there. It was President Monson, President Irene, and President uh, Utdor. And um, President Monson has a real love of Sweden, so we talked for a minute mm-hmm. about his Swedish connections and how much he loves the people and the culture. And then he said, we'd like to call you to be the young women general president of the church. And that's when I kind of fell apart. I just was not yeah. expecting it. And I'm really not your typical call. I don't think most of Most those, come from the, the board, right? Right. The, I, I mean, Lane, Lane Dalton had been there for like 14, 16 years. Or yeah, yeah. <laughs> he started yeah. out on the board and then a counselor and then president. And so I had no, in fact, I said, when I finally gained control of myself, said to President Monson, I don't know if I know how to do this. Mm. <laughs> and he said, well, of course not. We just called you. <laughs> I mean, no sympathy there. <laughs> you know? And President Udorf saying, you're going to be great. He's like the cheerleader. You're going to be great. I can tell yeah. this is a good colleague for you. And President Irene, typical of him, I think, too, was saying, you will feel the hand of the Lord. He will help you. He was the kind of the spiritual mentor, you know. And finally, President Irene said, we haven't heard an answer yet, Sister Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I guess if nobody else would have thought of me, that, you know, but the Lord, so I'm sure he'll help me. But they told us we could not tell anybody. It was six weeks before conference when I would be sustained. I had to choose counselors. I went through a, a really hard period of trying to adjust to the idea of what I was being asked to do. And mm. I did receive a lot of support and help. I, Elder Anderson, who was um, had some responsibility in the priesthood department at the time, sat down with me and talked about choosing counselors and gave me, you know, a whole list of suggestions and ideas to look through. And that was helpful. But when it came down to it, I've been asked, how do you choose your counselors? Is, you know, Yeah, that's where I was going to go next. Just the same way when you're called into a yeah. award young woman president, you have to choose counselors. But you can pick anyone in the world, well, right? Pick, well, <laughs> kind of have to be in Utah. Okay, all right. <laughs> so so and Neil Marriott was the first one that came to, to mind. We had worked together years ago when they lived in St. Louis. And we kind of kept in contact through the years. And I just felt really good about the fact that she was a convert to the church. She wasn't from Utah. She has a Southern accent. Yeah, I love that. Um, she's just a little bit out of the mold. And yet she had no general church experience either. So I felt like I needed to look at those that maybe had some general church experience, you know, general level experience. And so Carol McConkie had served on the previous board with Elaine Downs Group. And, you know, you do a lot of fasting, especially at that level. <laughs> probably more so than I would have normally, fasting and prayer and fasting and prayer. And, and finally, these two names just felt solid, but I was afraid to turn their names in. I thought, I'm going to change their lives yeah. for the next five years. <laughs> and I just kind of, and finally the Spirit just said, you've got your answer, make that phone call, turn them in, you know, just mm. get on it, please. So, yeah. so I did. But the hard part was the feeling of inadequacy that just kept overwhelming me, a little bit of a panicky panicky feeling at times of, and, and I remember very specifically one day I was sitting by myself and I just cried out loud and I said, Heavenly Father, how can I do this? And he answered me, not, I didn't see a vision or hear a voice, but in my mind, I had a thought that came so clearly and it wasn't my own that said, because I will help you. Hmm. And I said, but why? (laughs) (laughs) He said, because this is my work. Wow. And that kind of carried me to remember, not my work. Yeah. And he was going to be there to help me. I wasn't doing this by myself. So yeah, that was kind of something I really needed to hear and something which did. Yeah. And something I could share with others when they receive a calling that, I, that they feel inadequate for or scared about. He will help you because it's his work. Yeah. So you're a sustained general conference, and mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like they're adjusting this, but back then, like you were set apart later that day and off and running. Not or? that day. It was okay. later in that week. Yeah, we were set Okay, but you were, I mean, oh. ready to go. Bam, you're there. You know? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, now they're giving them some orientation before they yeah, assume that's great. Know, it is great. <laughs> yeah, you recommend <laughs> Would have been great for, <laughs> <laughs> nice. for me. So, I mean, I remember talking to Sister Elaine Dalton about this of, of just walking in that role and, you know, you don't want to completely change things. And I, and many leaders experience this of, you know, I don't want to completely change what the last person did or whatnot. So how did you begin to walk in that set of vision, the revelation that would come? Well, Elder Paul Piper was one of our advisors at the time. And, and um, I think he was responsible for young women. I, I can't remember, but he, he sat down and he said, don't feel like you have to do things the way they've been done. I think they were kind of the fact that, that I was 
kind of out of the box, having had no experience at the general church level, tells me that maybe the Lord was ready for some fresh idea, new mm-hmm. ideas or, you know, new thinking. So yeah. I don't know, unexperienced thinking. Maybe that's a better way to put it. And so he said, like, when you're thinking about calling a board, don't feel like you have to do it the way it's always been done. And the day we were set apart, Elder Hales, who was, the, I think, the executive director of the priesthood and family, what was called the priesthood department then, is now the priesthood and family department. He had us, the three of us and our husbands come to his office, and it was a really unique experience. He was in failing health at the time. When he walked in, he had a man carrying an oxygen tank behind him, a helper, and wow. he seemed so frail and weak. I thought, you know, looks yeah. like he's about to fall over. He sat down and he started to speak to us, and this change came over him that was miraculous. His voice got stronger. He was clear and firm. You know, he, his advice to us was, he said, I don't know what's coming down the road, but some big things are coming. There's some big changes coming, and you're going to have during your tenure a barn burner, he called it. <laughs> so, oh, wow. Barn burner. And he was kind of encouraging us to don't be afraid of that. Yeah. You know, look for, it's okay. It's time for changes. It's time for new things. It's time to look at it. So. I kind of feel like that's the feeling and the attitude we were being directed by. We felt impressed to call international board members to our board. And so we could have eyes and ears on the ground in different parts of the world to know we're a global church now. And so, so typically in the past, it was you generally local, get local people so they could come yeah. to the meeting in person. Exactly. But, exactly. Yeah. And we did call four local board members, but we had a board member also in Brazil, one in Peru, one in South Africa, one in Japan, and one in Brooklyn. That's a foreign country. (laughs) (laughs) So we weren't functioning as a typical board. Plus, things were changing in the church. We were being called onto councils and committees that weren't specific to young women especially. And so our board members didn't get to, to do a lot of that kind of thing that in the past they've done. But the value of these international board members was that we asked them to at least once or twice a month, and they ended up doing it more in a lot of areas, please visit young women classes. And we gave them a radius. We didn't want it to be a terrible burden on them, but within a 50-mile or 100-mile radius or something, so they wouldn't have to travel too far. But please visit and then send us a report of what you're seeing. And we didn't want it to be like you're spying on you know these groups. Yeah. To, we want to know what things are like for these young women in different parts of the world. And for instance, our board member in South Africa, she was put on the committee. We were uh, revising the camp manual for young women camp. And it was so helpful to know that the young women in Africa don't need to learn to cook over a fire. Yeah. Because they're already doing it. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. And in Japan, camp looks different. They're not a camping society, especially. So what should camp look like right there? And so they they would just report back to us whenever they could visit a young women activity or a camp or a, just a class on Sunday and tell us what they were dealing with, what the situation was there. It was extremely helpful. And I feel like it was preparation for what they have now with these international council members, where they have called women now in different parts of the world who are, this is so brilliant, but I really think it it helped that we showed we can communicate with each other. Mm-hmm. We used to meet once a month with our all of our board members in a video conferencing setting. We had to learn a lot. We learned we couldn't sing because there's a one second delay, yeah. you know, and when you're doing that, doesn't work to sing, doesn't work to say the theme together. You know, we had to kind of learn as we went, and we had to find a time when we weren't catching any of them in the middle of the night. So some of them were meeting at five in the morning, and some were ten at night. But yeah. you know, it wasn't wow. sweet. Yeah, but it was a great experience. And like I say, when when they finally went to this system of having international council members, women who are called, who now are being trained by the board members. Hmm. I, they're not called board members. I can't think of what they're called now. I feel like we kind of were a step in that right direction to show we can do that. We can communicate with each other internationally and, and it's very valuable. Yeah. So, and I think that sort of model that as far as reaching international, is it uh, council members or whatnot? That's more typical now, right? Oh, it is. That's yeah. how they're doing it. And you know, the, the question we had back then was who's, who is training our stake young women leaders? Well, it's supposed to be the stake president. And I was saying, does he really understand the Young Women's Program yeah. like we do? Yeah. <laughs> and I yeah. think I think now they've kind of figured this out better. Now they have board members from Salt Lake City. They're not called board members. Yeah. Like but they're the ones that are training these council, these international counseling women, you know, and who then can train 
stake young women presidents. Yeah. And it's a great system. It's wow. much better. Yeah. <laughs> Just tell me about like speaking in general conference. What was that first experience like? That writing the talks, people always say, is that hard to speak in general conference? And I always say, speaking's not hard. Yeah. It's writing the talk. That's, that's the work hard. is done at that point. Yeah. The work is done at that point. So you, you get asked to do it maybe a month or six weeks before conference. And they don't tell you what to speak on. You get to use your inspiration. And I, I think the hard part is feeling like it's good enough. Mm. You know, you, you write, you rewrite it 10, 15, 25 times. You, know, yeah. you just keep refining it. And I, the first one, first one, I wrote this talk and I just felt so insecure. And, and um, I think it was Elder Piper who said, send it to me. Let me look it over. And they, they do that quite often, I think, among you know, yeah. different speakers, they do a little peer review. Yeah, might as well. And he had great, he was very honest. And he said, this part doesn't have anything to do with the rest. And it's just extraneous. And it was so helpful to wow. get that advice. And so I rewrote it again and again, you know, and then you have to send it to correlation and they review it for accuracy to make sure you're scripturally correct and doctrinally correct. And that you're not going to cause any lightning strikes because you said something yeah, yeah. outrageous yeah. or something. But, you know, there were times towards the end, especially where they say, you really want to say it like this? And I'd say, yeah, that's how I want to say it. I had more confidence at that point. First one, you're really nervous. And even when you finally get it done, you know, the thought that this is going to be published in the Unsigned Magazine, maybe used as a lesson and really study a preset, was <laughs> terribly intimidating to me. I, you know, that you do get to the point where you say, I've done the best I can. Heavenly Father, please magnify it so that people hear what they need to hear. And that happens a lot yeah. <laughs> where the Lord does. I felt that many times during my uh, time in the Young Women. But walking up to the pulpit, that's the easy part. I was scared that first time. I always get really nervous. Like I used to get nervous 24 hours before. I'd be pacing the floor and oh, how can I do this? That day, the calm would start to come. And when you step to, up to the pulpit, I call it the bubble of calm. Wow. You just feel peaceful. I never felt nervous giving my talk. And I think because you've practiced it a hundred times. In fact, they have you go to, there's a little room in the basement of the administration building that has a pulpit, just like the conference center pulpit. Uh -huh. And they can put a, the man who does the teleprompting running, he can put a, like this thing on the speaker that makes it sound like the conference center because oh, wow. it's really an echoey place. It's huge. It's a yeah. big place. And you slow down when you give a talk in there because- of this echoey thing. And so we can put that effect on there. And I would give the talk. I had one of our secretaries, she was always with me, who would notice if I was stumbling over a phrase or something and she'd mark, you know, you want to change this, you're stumbling there, you're not going to say it right. And he would time it. And if it was, you had a time, you know, you're to give a 10 minute talk or a whatever, you can't be over. And he would say, so Rosterson, go back and take 30 seconds out. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, so, and you would. Yeah. But you have that chance to practice it at the pulpit, you know, and, and it really is a thing to give you confidence. Yeah. That, so yeah. that's good for that. But I do appreciate that bubble of calm. That, I bet. I yeah. bet. What about just uh, traveling and experiencing the world as the Young Women's General President, seeing different countries and cultures in the context of that, you know, inspired uh, program? You can't do it without the Lord's help. That I can tell you. And traveling internationally, we normally did it once or twice a year. And those are marathon trips. And you don't know what's coming and you don't always have time to prepare because they throw things at you at the last minute. And, and so those, they're glorious trips because you do get to see the young women in, in their home setting. And I loved home visits where I could visit their homes and kind of get a feel for what it's like to live in the Philippines or Africa or, you know, but you also have to trust the Lord a lot that he's going to, you know, I, I would find out the day before, oh yeah, you're speaking in sacrament meeting tomorrow, you know? And so that night your home trying to make notes for, you know, what I'm going to talk about tomorrow. You learn as you go along to just take with you lots of ideas and lots of, you know, things that can be pulled out of your pocket at the last minute. But again, the prayer was always, Heavenly Father, I don't know that I'm enough for this, so please magnify my efforts. And he does. Yeah. You know, you'd feel the Spirit just making it better, giving you words to say that you didn't know you had. And International trips are very valuable. I think it's a great time to connect one-on-one -on -one with local young women leaders and to say, the Lord knows you. The Lord is aware of what you're dealing with here. And please tell me what you're dealing with. So it's kind of a two-way yeah. thing, too. We'd learn and they'd learn. Yeah. So 
with the hindsight of that experience of, and it was five years. Mm -hmm. It was a five year call from the beginning. So that's what you expected. Yeah. Wow. And with hindsight of that, that experience, what would you, if you go back in time and talk to Bonnie Oscarson as the ward young women's president (laughs) on, you know, day one, like what, what did you learn? What insight would you give yourself? Oh, that's a good question. I think our prophet today is, has got the best advice for anybody called to a new calling especially, you know, with the youth, and that is listen to the Spirit. You've got to be in tune with the Spirit to know, because that will direct you who needs help. See that girl, she needs help. See, you know, and here's, here's maybe what you could think of. The thing I worry about, and it was a question I always asked the most often, what is your biggest concern for the youth of the church right now? And it was, I'd pull out my cell phone and say, this is it. Hmm. Our youth have unlimited amounts of information coming at them 24-7. And to teach them to use those devices responsibly is a huge job, and it's not easy. Plus, how do we teach them what things they hear and read and constantly, what's true and what's not true? What can you trust? You know, and that to me is a huge concern. And so I, I think that's what parents are dealing with, and I think that's what youth leaders are dealing with, too, is, is helping youth to learn how to use their technology responsibly. Yeah. And they, they need to be aware of that. You know, when... When we raised our seven children, I could control what our kids were exposed to. I, I wouldn't allow R-rated movies, you know, to be seen in our house or books or whatever. Parents have kind of lost a lot of control yeah. over what their kids are exposed to now because everybody has a cell phone. Yeah. So. so when you go back to that principle of like following the spirit, what does that look like for you specifically? Is it a meditative process? Is it pacing? Is it reading the scriptures? Is it, I mean, that, like when you need to get in that mode of listening to the spirit, what does that look like for you? I want it all the time. Yeah. I don't, I don't just need it occasionally. And I, I, you know, we're told constantly the lifetime behaviors that will keep us in a, in a spot where we can be receiving that. For me, going to the temple often, we, both my husband and I serve as temple workers, but we try and go every week as patrons too. I had an experience when we lived in Houston, Texas. It was the first place that we, they built a temple while we lived there. It was the first time we'd ever lived near a temple. And honestly, I, I had struggled with temple attendance and trying to understand what it was all about and seeing the Savior in the temple until I became an ordinance worker. And then we were there three or four times a week sometimes. And that's when somebody said to me after I'd been serving in the temple for about a year, have you noticed any difference in your life? And I, thought, I really thought about that question. I thought it was a good question. And I realized that I felt the Spirit more in my life in everyday little things even so I think temple attendance is important. Again, President Nelson is saying, you don't like to go to the temple, go more often. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so yeah. How important that is to our spirituality. But prayer is very important to me too, to pray several times a day, to just feel like you're kind of in tune all the time. I, I appreciate the gift of prayer. I can talk to my Heavenly Father anytime I want. And he, he encourages that. And I make it a habit to read my scriptures daily to study. and Yeah. Those are, I mean, those are the primary answers, you know, and we, that you always hear about everything, but how do we have the spirit with us? You have to be walking the walk and talking the talk and just yeah. going through things that will invite that. Yeah. You mentioned uh, technology was sort of that focus of a concern you had for the youth during mm-hmm. that, that time of service. Was there any other issue or program or initiative that you really had to dig in and counsel together and, and work through that, that comes to mind during that time of well, it's interesting that I don't feel like, I don't know if we had a barn burner. I don't know if what the camp, we did come out with a camp guy eventually. Uh-huh. I, I think the barn burner was a slow sizzle <laughs> because things kind of changed during the time we were in to putting the women leaders. There was a lot more emphasis on let's have better representation from the women leaders of the church. There was a lot of the ordained women to the priesthood movement that was mm-hmm. very strident at the time and going on. And the leaders are sensitive to the, to the voices of, of women and wanting to make sure they felt like they're heard and listened to and that they're an important part of the work. So we started to be put on committees and councils that previously had not had women. For instance, about a year into my term of office, it was Sister Burton was the Relief Society General President and Rosemary Wixom was in primary and me. And they called us to serve on the three main councils of the ch- executive mm-hmm. councils of the church. There's Temple and Family History, Missionary, and the third one is 
now called priesthood and family department, which takes care of everything that's not in those other two, yeah. basically, you know, curriculum, auxiliaries, everything. It was the first time they'd ever had a woman on the Missionary Executive Council. And for me to go in there and sit once a week, we had a meeting at one o'clock in the missionary department and Elder Oaks was the executive director, Elder Bednar, Elder Anderson, Bishop Waddell, Elder Brent Nielsen, and me. And to be the only woman, you'd think it would, it would, it could have been intimidating, but it wasn't. These men are so open and loving and inclusive. And always, if I didn't say something, they would turn to me and say, what do you think? So I think that was a big movement. And like I say, Sister Burton was called to the priesthood and family department and Sister Wixom was called to the temple and family history. Now they have two women serving on each of those committees from the auxiliary presidencies, mm. and which is probably a better thing to have a partner. Because when you're the only woman in the room, it, it can feel like you don't have a voice. But I again, I had to learn to listen to the spirit. And sometimes the spirit during a meeting would say, you just had a thought. Why didn't you say that? Mm. Why didn't you say it out loud? You know, and so I would. And sometimes the spirit would say, yeah, don't say that. <laughs> That's <laughs> not worthwhile. So that became one of my favorite meetings. But I did see how the church is run by councils firsthand. And I saw that these men in the Quorum of the Twelve and the Seventy, they're not there because they have an agenda and they you know, know what's best and everything. It's all, what does the Lord want to have happen? So we did in our presidency a lot of preparation for the big changes that you've seen since President Nelson has uh, was sustained, we had meeting after meeting about the Come Follow Me program mm. of home-centered, church-supported. And we didn't know COVID was coming. We had no idea with that, but we all felt this strong impression that we need to bring this back to the home. It needs to be taking place in the home and the church is a support. It was just so strong, I can't even hardly tell you about it, but curriculum meetings and trying to figure out what that looked like and everything else. The Lord knew what was down the road and what was needed. And and so we were participating in those kinds of things. So we helped do the preparation for Come, Follow Me, but it didn't take place until you know, after we were released. Yeah. It's okay. And that was, again, part of Elder Bednar's thing is, it doesn't matter who gets credit. What's important is what the Lord wants to have happen in the church. You know, The youth programs have gone through some dramatic changes since we left. We were involved. We knew that scouting was about to be you know, separated from church so we worked closely with the Young Men's Presidency, and we said, first they were saying, let's start preparing for what it looks like when, we don't, when we're not connected with Boy Scouts of America. What does the Aaronic Priesthood Program look like? And our presidency said, wait just a minute. If you're going to be revising Young Men's Program, could we please join with you? Mm-hmm. And could we do this together? And I think that was inspiration for the Lord. Could we make the programs a little bit more equitable? You guys get a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> And people noticed that, that the scouting program got a lot of money and a lot for their camping, you know. Could we please equalize the programs a bit more? Could we, could we look at the personal development programs of personal progress? And scouting had kind of overshadowed yeah. what their personal development program was. And so we did a lot of work interviewing leaders and, and professionals and meeting together. Did a lot of pre-work that then didn't really happen until after we were released. But that's kind of the way the church moves. It moves slowly. Things don't happen overnight when you want to make a change. It's like, they used to tell us, it's like trying to turn an ocean liner around. You don't just go, you know, yeah. it's, it's a very slow process because it's so big and it has you have translation issues and you have, you know, worldwide church again. So what a privilege though, to have seen behind the scenes the efforts in getting these things started and along the road. And, and then when we were replaced and the new presidency came in, they picked up where we left off and continued to improve. And it's thrilling to watch that from afar, having seen behind the scenes then. Yeah. So just listening to that, what I'm learning is like, I'm just thinking about the sisters that may be listening who feel like their voice isn't heard in a council setting or, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they don't, they often get frustrated about it, by it, whatnot. But there's these moments where either the spirit's really encouraging to speak up or, mm-hmm. you know, even with the best intention of the men that were involved in these general authorities and whatnot. Sometimes they didn't realize that, you know, like with the young men, like we're going to revise the ironic priesthood mm-hmm. program. And you came in and said, well, wait a minute, let's, let's broaden the scope a little bit and talk about it. And so just sort of inserting yourself and, and giving that opinion mm-hmm. was really necessary for that revelation to continue. I think we're doing better as a church. I think we've, ward councils have gotten 
better at including more women. For instance, my husband was the bishop during the time I was young women's president. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just downtown Salt Lake Ward. And we didn't, it's an inner city ward, so we didn't even have any youth. Here I'm the young women's, so don't you have any youth in our ward, and barely a primary. We finally had like five or six kids, you know, in the primary. But so when he would hold ward council, there weren't very many women there because we didn't have a young women's president. We didn't have a primary president at first. So he would invite counselors to come, you know, the whole Relief Society presidency mm-hmm. to come. Because you need women's voices in ward councils yeah. too. I think we're doing better. I think the men are are becoming more aware of the importance and understand that the principle of the council is that we discuss it. Revelation can be scattered among us all and that it's get everybody's opinion, hear every voice, and then it has to be unanimous. When we make a decision, it has to be unanimous. And I think we're I think we're getting better at that on the local levels of ward and state councils. Yeah. And the men are aware of how much the women can contribute. And if women feels like they're not being heard, then they need to speak up. They yeah. need to be strong and say, I really have a strong opinion about this and I would appreciate it if you would listen. Yeah. So, Love it. Love part, it. And parts of the world too, women aren't valued. Their voices aren't valued as much. And so I know when we were sent to places like Africa, we were starting at a more basic level and we were having to teach and encourage, you know, listen to each other and read yeah. the scriptures that talk about one voice at a time, but listen to everybody. And Yeah, that's a, a great mention that even in other countries, there may be some deeper cultural barriers that well, there, there are. you can't just write a new paragraph in the handbook and consider it fixed, right? No, no, absolutely <laughs> yeah. not. Yeah. Yeah, that's tough. Bunny, any other principle, concept, story that we want to make sure we, we fit in here before we wrap up? Well, one other thing I thought, thought about is happened shortly after I was sustained and had started I was finding myself sitting in these councils, and because of my lack of experience in doing this, I felt really insecure, and I felt like I didn't have a lot to contribute, and they always will turn to the women in the room at that level and say, what do you think? And sometimes my mind would just go blank when they do that. I'm sitting with 70s and sometimes yeah. apostles, and and um, I started dreading going to work every day, because mm-hmm. like every day, it's like a full-time job, and one morning in my prayers, I was kind of expressing, <laughs> this is scary. And I kind of got reprimanded by the Spirit, which said, do you know how many women get to do what you've been asked to do? What a privilege this is. I don't expect you to be perfect. I don't expect you to know everything. It's okay. I've told you I'll help you. And I, it changed my whole attitude about it. I just thought, it's my pride that's hurt there because I feel like I should be great at everything, and I'm not. And I'm going to have to grow into this. I'm going to have to learn. And you're right. How many people get to sit in this setting that I'm getting to sit in and listen and be with these people? And I stopped worrying about it. And I just thought, I'm going to do my best. The Lord has said he would make up the rest. And it started to become a joy. And it was. I have to say, for the rest of the time I got to serve, it was a joy and a privilege. I was out of my comfort zone a lot. I was asked to do things that I just never could have imagined. There are pinch me moments every day when you say, am I really getting to do this? But quit worrying about yourself and how you appear and just say, I want to be a part of doing the Lord's work and he's there for you. So Yeah. Love that. Great perspective. Uh, so what's your life full of now? Temple. And okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we moved to Provo uh, a little over two years ago and we live right near the Provo Temple and we, we serve there weekly. My husband's a sealer, and so he does a couple sealing shifts a week, and we're both ordinance workers. And when we're not in the temple, we're, we've been called to serve in the MTC. Oh, Talk wow. about a continuation of, yeah. of serving on the Missionary Executive Council. So we're ecclesiastical leaders at the MTC, which means we're kind of, we provide the home ward setting for the missionaries there. They're divided into branches, uh-huh. and we have a zone that's our branch. And some of them only stay two weeks, and some of them are there, you know, six or eight weeks if they're learning a harder language, but... We nurture them. We're there for them. We have sacrament meeting and priesthood and relief society with them. We have discussion groups with them. And um, it's really, really a fun assignment. Yeah, so, sounds like it. Yeah. That's great. Awesome. Well, the last question I have for you, Bonnie, is as you reflect on your time as a leader in the church, mm-hmm. how has being a leader helped you become a better follower of Jesus Christ? Well, going back to what I said about, you know, not not having so much pride, thinking you have to Leadership in the church is just so different than leadership in the world. And I've, I've seen both watching my husband deal with dictatorial bosses who said, well, I say he goes and you don't, you know, get your own opinion. You do what I say versus the church where it's all, what does the Lord want to have happen? This is all about individuals, not programs. 
show love and concern, help everybody have a good experience. To me, that's the difference in, in leadership in the church versus the world. And I'm glad I don't have to work in the world <laughs> these days. I'm glad, I'm glad I get to be a part of an organization that believes that Jesus Christ set the perfect example of leadership because he did it through love. That concludes this episode of the Leading Saints podcast. Hey, listen, would you do me a favor? You know, everybody's got that friend who listens to a ton of podcasts, and maybe they aren't aware of Leading Saints. So would you mind taking the link of this episode or another episode of Leading Saints and just texting it to that friend? You know who I'm talking about, the friend who always listens to podcasts and is always telling you about different podcasts. Well, it's your turn to tell that friend about Leading Saints. So share it. We'd also love to hear from you. If you have any perspective or thought on this episode, you can go to leadingsaints.org and actually leave a comment on the episode page or reach out to us at leadingsaints.org slash contact. Remember, go listen to Dan Duckworth's presentation about youth mentorship by visiting leadingsaints.org slash 14. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.